0: Across the globe. That cut opening tonight's show was Meta Prayer by Celia. And I hope you could catch the words May all beings of the world be safe and all other sorts of good things like that and free from suffering. Hey, listeners, um, I'm wondering if uh, you heard about Meatless Mondays. Uh, in an effort to promote compassion over killing, more and more cities across the country are promoting Meatless Mondays. Meatless Mondays are officially endorsed in Boone, North Carolina, uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and three cities in good old California, San Francisco, Oakland, and Los Angeles. And, you know, they used to say, I think maybe they still say, as California goes, so goes the country. Well, let's make it so. And if you're interested in helping your city become an official endorser of Meatless Mondays, um, contact C-O-K That's C-O-K as in compassion over killing. And, you know, you don't have to aim to make your city meatless Mondays. What about your school or your office or your family? Just think about it. And uh, I think I have a great show for you tonight. At the top of the hour, Ken Worthy, lecturer and research associate, author of Invisible Nature, discusses finding the human place in nature and delves into why nature is invisible how clean technology contributes to environmental degradation and how our dissociation from people and things diminishes our ability to be ethical people, can make suggestions uh, so we humans can become uh, more interconnected, and we discuss if there's hope for our environmental crisis. Then, Sylvia Federici, feminist, teacher, writer, founder of the International Feminist Collective, and author of Caliban and the Witch women, the body, and primitive accumulation. We'll discuss women, witch hunting, and the development of capitalism, past and present. You probably never thought witch hunting, domestic violence, and capitalism were all connected. Well, listen up tonight and find out how. Sylvia also connects the dots uh, between witch hunting and uh, lots of other things that have been going on in the country, uh, 9-11, the Occupy movement. Um, we'll get into all of that. We'll delve into a forgotten revolution that almost toppled the church and state at the end of the Middle Ages and the witch hunts that consumed Europe for more than 200 years. And if anyone apologized for this gender side and how it actually still affects us today. But uh, let me ask you something else on a different topic. Are you childless by choice, guy or girl out there? Well, I am. I'm one of those women who has chosen to birth ideas and books and projects and organizations and radio programs and leave the childbearing and childrearing to other women who really feel that call. And if you are childless by choice, doesn't it get your panties in a bunch when some people don't get that and they look at you like you've got two heads or something or insinuate you must be selfish if you don't want children? Well, Pat, a listener, sent me an article about this I could really relate to, and I want to share the gist of it with you. It's about being childless by choice. And uh, the article is titled, Don't Cry for Oprah's Unborn Children. And it was written by Mary Elizabeth Williams, a staff writer at Salon. And I'll just encapsulate it for you here. Uh, Oprah was interviewed by the Hollywood Reporter for its Power 100 uh, very recently. Uh, Oprah, who single-handedly changed the publishing industry, runs a production company, has a slew of Emmys, and was just nominated for a Screen Actors Guild Award and picked up a Presidential Medal of Freedom. And get this, the headline of the interview wasn't about her In the world, or all she does for people. Instead, the headline was in part Oprah Winfrey on Forgoing Motherhood. Seriously? I mean, seriously? Who was that interviewer? A Stepford wife who wants to measure Oprah by the output of her womb? Well, as Mary Elizabeth Williams reminds us, it still seems in some quarters choosing a childless life must be some terrible personal failing or due, some tragic, or due to some tragic circumstances. Not you just don't, you know, you're not into birth and no babies this time around. And I'll reiterate Ms. Williams' conclusion. There is nothing wrong with not wanting to be a parent, and nobody, not even the queen of television, should have to explain being child-free. And neither should childless-by-choice women or men have to explain it away as some kind of good fortune to their children who might have been, because women or men like us, driven to do other things besides being a mother or father, would be neglectful of our children. Well, I probably take better care of my cats than some people do their children, but I digress. That really makes me want to write that Hollywood reporter who interviewed Oprah and give her a piece of my mind. What do you think? Tell me in the chat room. And stay tuned. Uh, In between my chat with Ken and Sylvia, I'm going to tell you about a new Michigan abortion law requiring women to buy rape insurance. Yes, uh, the Republicans are at it again. No, they've... Just never stop trying to control women's bodies And I hope you're listening if you are in a red state And have to vote anytime soon uh, And one final thing before I introduce uh, listeners to Kenworthy uh, I have to pay the bills for airtime So please listen to this new commercial from Joe Carson And Dancing with Gaia And I am in gratitude to her for running her commercials here And helping out with that expense Here we go
1: most people's psychic experiences are dreaming and it's thought that it's the pineal gland making this chemical that does it. Now this was the core finding, the core finding that the pineal gland makes a hallucinogen. We all hallucinate, we all go into a state of consciousness that for me is the collective unconscious. This psychic status is the collective unconscious which is that consciousness of the planet what's called the chthonic mind, the mind of the earth. Because all peoples, all races, all tribes from the past right around the world have myths and legends which use symbols and archetypes which are identical. Identical. Every human being experiences this state of consciousness which is the dream mind. That symbolic archetypal exemplified by fairy tales or the creation myths and legends of all the different peoples. The symbols of them are the same and to me that is the consciousness of the earth speaking to us.
0: That was Serena Roney Dougal PhD speaking in Joe Carson's film Dancing with Gaia Dancing with Gaia explores the connection Between earth energy Sacred sexuality And the goddess as Gaia It features 15 visionaries Who give us tools to feel the life Of the planet within ourselves And the DVD comes with a 45 page mini book And it costs only $20 You can get your own copy At dancingwithgaia.com Christmas is around the corner, solstice, yule, it's all right around the corner, think about it. Okay, so let me uh, welcome um, Ken Worthy to the show and uh, let me tell you about him once again. Uh, Ken has a Ph.D. from the University of California, Berkeley. He's a lecturer and research associate at the University of California, Santa Cruz and a lecturer at St. Mary's College of California and the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, He's also a blogger. He blogs uh, at his name, Kenneth... Worthy.net and the green mind on psychologytoday.com. And his website is invisiblenature.com. Invisiblenature.com. And we'll try to remember to say that again. So, Ken, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Karen. It's nice to be on. Um,
0: well, let's start with uh, your premise that you say, um, you know, nature is invisible. Uh, Why don't you explain what you mean by that? Because I have a feeling maybe some of our listeners will get it, and some are scratching their heads going, well, what does he mean by that?
2: Yeah, it's mostly about how we experience our everyday lives in the modern world. Nature's still out there, still around us, actually, and quite visible, actually, except that in our basic experiences of the modern world, we don't have much contact with it. And so the invisibility of nature has to do with how we have a lack of experience with nature in, the, in our everyday lives. You know, we get in our cars, and our homes, and we're kind of surrounded by artifice. And the key of this is really to understand that even though it's not really present, not, the wild nature is not really present in our everyday lives, it's still our lives depend on it. And we kind of know that on a, some kind of fundamental level, but it's still we don't actually experience that dependence. We don't see it. We have the illusion, because of all the walls around us and all the stuff, the built stuff around us, we have the, the illusion that we don't really depend on nature anymore. But we do, very much so. We depend on nature to, to provide us with clean air and clean water and all sorts of other resources.
0: Well, you know I was just about to say that um, I'm reminded of this commercial that used to be on TV i haven't seen it in a while, <clears throat> and it's a, and it, this sort of segues into where we get our food from, you know, and you know there's this this guy in the grocery store trying to figure out how to get that ground meat in the package at the in the meat department. Uh, how does it make its way from there to his plate uh, as a hamburger um But this is even more than that because how did it get to the grocery store um you know I think we're we're really dis you know we're disconnected from how we get our food, how we get our water I mean here in California, especially down here in Southern California, I mean it's piped down from i think way up in northern California someplace. I mean, we could literally have somebody cut the spigot off and we would be a desert again.
2: (laughs) Yeah. In today's world, we're really cut off, because the sources of our sustenance are so remote, we're really cut off from them, and we don't know much about them. We just have to kind of have faith in modern institutions and the economic systems and companies and government agencies to make sure it all keeps rolling. But, um, you know, like you said, L.A. is getting its water from far away in the Owens Valley and in northern California, and they're talking about now pumping even more water from the bay, uh, the delta up here uh, in northern California down to southern California with two huge tunnels uh, being built under the delta. And the, the, the the key critical part of all of this is that when we don't, really have connection with the sources of our sustenance, then we can't really make decisions um, based on the health and well-being of those sources. And so, um, in particular, we make choices and decisions every day, all day, that affect nature and affect the whole wide world out there somewhere, but we don't have connection to those uh, consequences. We're disconnected from the consequences of our own actions, and in fact, that's kind of a new thing in the in the world in human history. Actually, just in the last point 25 percent of human history has it been true that most of our actions play out elsewhere in the world, far away from us, because of so modern you, uh, transportation.
0: Well, Ken, are you talking about, for instance? You know, we get all of our gadgets from sweatshops in third world countries and most people spend most of their life behind a computer rather than just even going outside or is it that plus even a bigger picture
2: yeah well it's all of those things and the bigger picture first of all starting with you know the basic experience of everyday life is doesn't really include much wild nature anymore and that's new in human history but the second part of that is that Our experiences don't really include much experience of our own consequences, so we make choices every day, um, and those play out everywhere. For instance, you might buy some processed food in the supermarket, and if that processed food has uh, palm oil in it, then you are contributing probably to deforestation in Indonesia, where the vast palm oil plantations are supplying palm oil for much of the world. Oh, wow. And the problem with that is the loss of rainforest to begin with, and that has so many different implications, like the loss of rainforest, the loss of habitat for various kinds of creatures, including orangutans, who are being decimated, their populations are being decimated, and there, there are some Uh, Agencies down there, International Animal Rescue, for instance, trying to rescue some of these orangutan populations as the forests are being toppled. Um, But, you know, they can barely keep up, and all they can do is put them in sanctuaries where they can't live quite wild lives anymore. So well, that's and also
0: too, we're we're losing, um, you know, uh, probably plants that may cure cancer. I mean, we don't even, haven't even discovered yet. I mean, we're we're sort of slitting our own throat. I mean, I hate to be so graphic, but sometimes it feels like that. And um, so much of the uh, population out there feels oblivious to it. Uh, you know, as long as you know they can plug in their TV and their iPhones and all of that stuff and. Um, the grid stays up. <laughs>
2: yeah, you know uh, what you said is actually true in a pretty literal sense. Because, it, and it's even worse than that. We're not just slitting our own throats; we're slitting the throats of our descendants. Because as we contaminate much of the landscape and as we decimate biodiversity, the possibilities for future human generations are become narrower and narrower. And so we're, we're closing down the world right now. We're closing down all sorts of ver- you know various medical remedies that exist in nature that need to be discovered, uh, for instance. And we're closing down in some in the most graphic sense, for instance, there are landscapes now that are so radioactive that at least for centuries and maybe for thousands of years, nobody's going to be able to live there, like around chernobyl and around fukushima they're radioactive and contaminated and we all participate in these problems but that participation is so unclear to us we can't really internalize it because we turn on light switches and the connection between turning on the light switch and what's going on like the consequences is so vague to us we can't really respond and right. I know you probably wanted to talk about that at some point, but that's why I'm talk- That's why I'm saying that this dissociation, as I call it, between us and the consequences of our actions, means that it's very difficult. It's become almost impossible for us to be fully ethical beings anymore, because we right. can't really line up our values with our intention with our actual actions there's a disconnect between our actions and our values now that's never really been so pronounced in human history
0: well yeah and i and 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 it goes back to what you said originally you know we're so disconnected from actual uh nature that uh you know the you know what we're doing what it actually we we can't see how the dots are connected because like you said that uh you know, we may be, when we buy that palm oil product, you know, that's something happening across the globe. But, but you know, I think part of it too is, can we have such short memories. I bet pe- most people aren't even thinking about Fukushima anymore, um, unless maybe you're on the West Coast, because I know there's been a lot of paranoia that, you know, maybe, you know, the radioactivity is going to be diluted so much by gets, by the time it gets here. But I know there's some people worried about, are the fish going to be, safe to eat and um you know and, and not to mention the poor people in Japan uh you know I would be afraid to, to live in Japan now you know it, it, you know no matter where I was if I if I was within a few hundred miles of there
1: yeah
2: it's it's really true and I I'm I worry a little bit about um gathering wild mushrooms as I like to do sometimes in California here I worry about that now, and I worry about, you know, how much of our soil and how much of our produce might be affected. I think it's very little at this point. But, you know, it comes to the key question of ignorance. Like, we are so divorced from these processes and all of this, so each one of us individuals remains pretty much uh, an amateur when it comes to all of these systems that we depend on. No, well, you know, I think people have gotten is.
0: so. Well, I think people have gotten so busy. You know, they're just struggling. Um, you know, to make ends meet. That it's almost as if maybe they put blinders on because the idea of having to think about all of this too, on top of, you know, are they going to keep their job? Um, you know, they're, yeah. they're going to be ready for a rubber room. Um, but I yeah. wonder too, Ken. Um, I, I think about you know the Koch brothers, uh, Monsanto. I mean, all of these short-term thinkers for profit, and you know, in the in the end timers out there who don't care about climate change or what we do the environment because gee, if the world ends, they're going to see Jesus. Um, You know, it's really scary the level of indifference and ignorance out there. I I wonder if it's always been this way or if we just see more of it now or do we have so many people out there brainwashing, you know, other folks like with Fox News and things like that that, um, I don't know, it just feels like it's insurmountable, but, you know, I'm hoping you're going to give us some hope.
1: (laughs) Well,
2: you know, I would just say also that, related to what you said before about memory and the lack of remembering all of these disasters and also of ignorance. And the key really comes back over and over again to what are our daily experiences? Because if we had daily experiences of, of the wasteland around, um, Fukushima, the people who work there, they're not going to forget ever. Um, if we have daily experiences of these problems, then we remember and we, we can respond. And it kind of the flip side of that is being disconnected from these consequences means that wealthy people like the Koch brothers, etc., they can propagate all sorts of um, devastations or whatever in the world, and uh, it doesn't come back to them. People in modern times feel isolated or rather insulated from the outcomes of their choices, and that's really devastating for the environment and for people working in sweatshops that are unsafe, etc., in Bangladesh or wherever.
1: Well, you
0: know, so, um, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: Uh, but we can get to the positive part of this at some point, which is that, um, well, to continue along the lines of what I was just saying is that basically the core message of my book, And I explain this in several chapters. Is that experience matters. It matters very much in our ethical well, in our well-being, and it matters in our ability to be ethical people. And we are still animals, but we behave as if we are these idealized kind of rational beings imagined by Mm -hmm. some of our Western philosophers, like Plato that we can just respond to pure information. But I show, in especially a a chapter that I get into the psychology of it, I show that actually we can respond to some degree to information, and that's helpful. It's the first step. We must learn about the consequences of our actions to be able to respond. We must learn about what, first of all, in the first case, what our society is doing to nature and what our... Economy and our industry is doing to nature. And that's the first step. But And ultimately, we must start to be able to witness these consequences. And there are a lot of ways of doing that that I talk about in the last chapter that I, I, I think we'll get to talking about that at some point. Um, but, you know, if we can realign, first of all, the knowledge, and second of all, the experience, with the people making the decisions, which means in modern life, all of us making decisions that affect the world, um, then we can start to um, really reshape a much healthier uh, response to the world and make make a much healthier planet i think
0: well, you know and believe me i want i I, I, I am an advocate of all of this, but sometimes I really worry because. You know, with corporations or people now, you know, and, you know, they can sink as much money into the political system as they want, even if the average people, um, you know, I mean, we would have to have, it feels like to me almost, we would almost have to have rebellion in the streets for something to really change. Because even look with the Occupy movement, I mean, not that that was about environmentalism per se, but, you know, it was sort of here and it left. And, you know, and everything is just sort of back to normal now. And um, I guess I, 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 it, it feels like um, it, it's going to take something that we haven't seen yet to shift the tides uh, because you have so many people that don't even know about this, another group of people who don't care and want to keep it the way it is because they're benefiting from it. Um, right. You know, it just seems like it's a huge, uh, almost impossible um, problem to to sort of right the ship, if, if you know what I mean.
2: It is huge, but I'm hoping, um, as I write in Invisible Nature, that... Um, when people realize that there's this ironic thing about all of the luxuries of modern life, you know, being able to get whatever you want from just about anywhere in the planet at any time, uh, it's just so easy to, you know, at least for most of us, not everybody, um, you know, there are a lot of poor people in the industrialized world, but for most of us it's really pretty easy materially to live. We have to manage complex lives, but we have... Um, you know, plenty of fully stocked grocery stores and we don't even have to go anywhere to buy stuff anymore it's just all available practically the entire world is available at, you know, by clicking on website pages and so my, there's a real, uh, the real ironic thing though is that in spite of all that power there's a, a, a disempowerment of all of us in the western world in the industrialized world which is that, as I was saying before, you can't really, with so much disconnection from nature and from the consequences that you're creating, you know, jo- uh, companies actively try to ho- withhold information and any kind of experience from you related to your decisions. Right. Um, with that disempowerment, uh, that's actually something that we should be concerned and think about. And my hope is that when people start to realize that and, you know, maybe that this message can get out that actually we're very powerful in the modern world, but we're also treated like um, treated like infants according to this economy because we're mm-hmm. given a whole set of things that we can do, but we can't really shape how we're shaping the world. And that's why mm-hmm. the environmental crisis is rolling along because It's all happening kind of out of view and seemingly out of control because it's so remote from us. But if we can start to grasp a hold of the problem that our ethics are being taken over, we've handed them over to companies and corporations that are full, uh, corporations and government agencies that are full of people just like us and who are us, who are similarly disconnected from the consequences of their actions. And so we end up in a world where people are no longer um really grasping their own roles in the in the universe and the world and on the planet. It's kind of right. ethics is taken away from us and we and when people I think realize that they may start to respond and try to want to empower themselves. And there are many ways we can empower ourselves. And the first and foremost, the easiest way, it's actually Something. This whole project of empowerment is something that people can get excited about, I think, and I have been for years, which is that you can start to learn how your actions are playing out in the world. And there are companies that are making this, organizations that are making this easier now. For instance, there's the Good Guide, which is a website and a cell phone app that helps you learn about the social and environmental effects and consequences of various products you might want to buy. And so you can start to do research on that and make the best choices for your health and for the planet. And that's empowering. But that's just the first step. And there are a lot of tools for doing that. That's just the first step. There's a lot of ways that we can reorganize and restructure our society, especially to take all of the... um, intermediations between us and our politicians and our and our political power out to take the money out to take everything out so that we're directly involved in the uh, expression of our own political desires and our own ethical desires so that would mean removing money from politics removing corporations from politics and lobbyists and all of that and having much more direct and participatory democracy where right. people, Actually, are playing a role in, in it, and um, you know, instead actively, of
0: disillusion, we we seem to yeah. have. Um, it reminds well, it, me
2: of something. You, I'm sorry, just one really quick thing. Um, it reminded me of something that you were saying before about Fox News, which is one of the problems with being so disconnected from the consequences and where where the the rest of the world, where our consequences is playing out, is we can be manipulated by media companies, just like Fox News, comes in, and a couple of years ago there was a big snowstorm um, on the East Coast, and they put a copy of Al Gore's book, An Inconvenient Truth, in a snowbank and ridiculed the book, saying, look, this book predicted global warming, and it's not happening because we have this big snowstorm on the (laughs) East Coast. And actually, the big storms, including big snowstorms, are a predicted outcome of global climate change. So they were well, really. You don't expect
0: those people to read a book, do you? I'm, yeah. I'm really being mean, but oh, <laughs> 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 indulge in a sec.
2: Yeah, well, the thing is that we're all, that's an extreme example, but we're all being, to some degree, either actively or passively um, shaped by the media who come in between. And is what I was talking about before, with, you know, the companies often take away um, our ability to know and to be ethical agents, like all of the meat packing plants and factory farms that produce meat in this country. They, you were talking about Meatless Monday before, which is, I think is a great idea, because these places actively keep journalists and everybody else out. Nobody can, mm-hmm. It's really hard to find out how your meat is being produced. Just try, you know, any consumer, just try to follow that line and even if you can find the factory somewhere in Kansas or wherever it is that's producing the meat that you're buying, just try to see what's going on in that plant and right. you'll find out that those companies actively exclude us from seeing and witnessing What's happening to the animals?
0: Right. Yeah, we've had um, you know some animal rights advocates on the show before, and you know we've we've talked about that. And um, you know it makes me think when you say about the brainwashing. You know, not just Fox News, but it, I was thinking about some of the commercials that the um, the energy companies run. You know, as if they're these green and pristine. Uh, it, you know. Uh, you know uh, methods they use. You know they. I, I mean, you know they're so slick. You know they're so slick. Yeah. Or or even the the Foster. I think it's the Foster's Farms chicken commercials with those. You know with the chickens. I mean they just they're masters. You know they are masters at manipulation uh, and brainwashing to get people thinking exactly what they want them to think, and it's so far from the truth. Um yeah. you know I, I just can't imagine w- why we don't have laws against uh fraud and advertising, but of course yeah. that would mean you know corporations would you know uh you know would have to be ethical then
2: <laughs> yeah, I think it's well, really you know, complicated you, yeah it
0: is it it's a complicated subject and and, and but you talk about in your book. Even some other ways that um, you know we're you know we're sort of messing things up that we don't even think about. You you have something in chapter seven about modern space, how it's organized, uh, is a problem, and and also even um, cell phones and laptops. Uh, that seem like they're clean technology, uh, they're really contributing to environmental degradation. Why don't you address those two things, uh, because that might be stuff we haven't even thought about.
2: Yeah. In um, in this book, Invisible Nature, what I do is I lay out um, the kind of ancient origins of our disconnections in the modern world so first of all I, I look at our experiences and what are we involved with well we're involved with you know built things and human ideas like spreadsheets and numbers and bottom lines and um production quotas and things like that and we're involved with walls and cars and smartphones so what we're not involved with though it, um Uh, is nature and our consequences and how we play out, how our lives play out in the world and so that's kind of a disconnection and I call it a dissociation and I wanted to find out where all of these um, dissociations come from and it turns out that if you study the whole history of thought in the western world going back through Plato, the most important thinkers, they all embed in their ideas in a peculiar way these kinds of disconnections that um, ended up in the modern world, um, really influencing our ideas, our outlooks on the world, and the way the world should be put together. And so, for instance, some famous ones are Plato um, and his idea that the human mind is this completely separate uh, existence from the human body. (laughs) And it's a really stark idea, and it influenced influence Christianity very heavily, of course. And um, it's, not something that, it's something that is kind of unusual among all human cultures, this idea that the human mind just exists in a realm that's not even connected to any part of nature. A lot of societies have been animist societies. In fact, probably most human groups throughout history have been animist except for the last few th- few uh, millennia. and that means that they see spirit not just in people but in the landscape in trees and stones and rivers. And well, um, that that's kind of a different thing. That is spirits that can travel when when you look at reincarnation can travel between say a human and a tree or something. But Plato had the idea that um, the spirit is just completely separate and exists before and after the body exists, and is eternal, in fact. And I go into the reasons why he probably came up with these ideas, but it turns out that that kind of dissociation, that disconnect between mind and body, is just one of many that shape um, human, uh, excuse me, shape Western ideas. In fact the eco-feminist philosopher Val Plumwood talked about all of these divisions that show up in Western uh, philosophy philosophical history, rather, as a fault line that runs through all of the major concepts of Western thought of Western thought throughout uh, history. And so it's mind body, it's nature, culture, it's uh, human, and non-human. It's all of these different kinds of uh, disconnections uh, that run all the way through our Western world. And for Descartes, it was consciousness and not uh, unconsciousness, which he said only humans have consciousness, and that's why he could. We're living with that today. You know, animal rights people are seeing that uh, today because he said that only humans have consciousness and so animals you know they're just machines they can be uh just experimented on without limits and so to make a long story short uh, i found that these concepts play out through our history and they they really um they really support our creation of the world as a disconnected place And we see this in in the modern world. We see this in two distinct places. We see this in the way we put together and shape our spaces. And, for instance, if you fly in a plane over the continental United States, in the middle you see the Great Plains, and they're made out of uh, thousands upon thousands of little squares, many of which have circles in them. And that's because we've divided up this landscape into a checkerboard. It looks like a giant plaza, uh, mm. Italian piazza, and that's one way we've divided up spaces, and you look in our cities and you see more divisions of space, whereas in throughout more, uh, most of human history, people have just been able to walk across cities wherever they wanted to or towns, but now we have exclusion um, becoming the rule, and that started all the way back when um, the pilgrims came to the United States came to North America, excuse me, and um, started putting up fences that disrupted the Indians' hunting practices and put up uh, fences, uh, stockade fences around their gardens, et cetera. They started to compartmentalize space.
0: And, is and is it, does it also all, have something to do with our losing, um, losing the commons, you know, that, that used to be for everybody? Now things have become, become more privatized as well?
2: Exactly, so it's about exclusion and privatization And this is a kind of a formula of division Of dividing up spaces for particular specialized uses and ownership And it's about rationalist bureaucracy, et cetera, And imposing this kind of order on the landscape That is alien in many ways to the actual um, To the nature that is in that landscape Because, you know, that checkerboard across the Great Plains, that's really not natural in any sense, you know.
1: Right. uh,
0: Well, Ken, do you think uh, some of this isn't just, um, uh, you know, some of the reasons that you said, but, um, I'm wondering if religion also plays into this because, you know, the Bible tells, you know, man he is sort of entitled to be, um, you know, uh, you know the the ruler of nature, so to speak. You know, uh, some people don't interpret, uh, you know, the Bible to mean the caretaker of the earth, but you know, th- that that it's his to, ex- you know, to do whatever he wants, which include exploitation, and so it, you know, it's almost as if it's it's about um, patriarchal privilege yeah. you know, that, that's oh, sort sure. of given give yeah. license to by religion
2: Absolutely, yeah there are many, many different kinds of influences um, into the reshaping of the continent and the breaking up into private spaces etc, and uh, certainly the colonists came from england with ideas bl- biblical ideas which they quoted and used as justification for basically taking over the lands etc you know they talked about the uh, the continent as a wasteland and they quoted genesis one twenty eight you know be f- uh, be fruitful go forth and multiply and uh, and you know basically the ideas of uh, expressing dominion over the over the landscape, and it's oriented a certain kind of, like you said, patriarchal, uh, dominating attitude. But what I'm uh, looking at in my book is this other dimension, which is how is it that we spatially have uh, divided things up? And um, it turns out division itself, just the idea of division or dissociation is actually an ordering principle, not only in our landscapes, but in our lives in general. Um, And it's especially prevalent if you, or salient rather, if you look and compare it with other cultures, as I do um, in in, uh, various uh, parts of my book. And the other place where division shows up, um, not very surprisingly, is if you look at the ways in which... um, uh, Western perception and thought are organized, and they are much more heavily dividing than they are integrating uh, compared to other cultures. So if you, um, you know, a lot of cultural psychologists have looked at this and seen how um, um, Western minds, when, when Westerners are tested in various ways, for instance, when they're asked to explain someone's behavior Maybe it was a a mass murderer or something like that. Westerners will almost uniformly tend to explain it based not on any kind of connections or context, but on the individual. Like we look at individuals without context. We can't see the connections that people are embedded in 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 their lives. In other words, the
0: brainwashing and the wedge issues and all the divisiveness that we get from, you know, all of, all of the different megaphones that are screaming at us constantly that sort of shape our attitudes.
2: Yeah, that, that, that becomes part of it. Um, the main thing is um, the, you have um, perception and co- cognitive processes that favor disconnection and divorce and separation. And over and over, I go through just the whole realm of various kinds of experiments and surveys that have been done that show that um, in the West we tend to, and this is obviously not everybody, but the tendency is to break up our understanding of the world and to see the world in bits and pieces rather than as a kind of a continuity. And that's different from many Eastern cultures, most Eastern cultures, and in fact, um, some studies have been shown recently that, you know, in the history of psychology, the most of the subjects have been Westerners, and these people say that actually Westerners are very unusual and uh, in many ways, and in the ways I'm talking about, too, in the ways we perceive and conceive of the world, we divide it up, and actually psychology really needs to take better uh, account of the differences between Western and Eastern and various, you know, African, various kinds of um, ways of thinking about, about the world. And that's not just about the content, you know. It's not about, like, well, we think about cars more or we think about trees. It's about method of thought. It's about, well, do we see the relationships between this person and another person or do we just think of the... The fundamental inherent characteristics of that person themselves, and so it's really right. striking when you you start to go through all this and you find out actually it's strange how how this principle of dissociation has come to embed not only all of our spaces in the modern world but our our minds and the way we see the world and our outlook.
0: Well, do you think this this also makes it easier? to um, To perpetuate this idea of rugged individualism, and we don't have to care about one another, uh, you know, and you know, uh, this this whole sort of you know uh, this attitude that's out there, as if we're you know living our life on the on the Serengeti, you know, if uh, yeah. you know if if you're poor, well, you just mustn't be working hard enough. Go die under a bridge, um, you know. It, oh yeah. It, it, you know it just. Feels like it's um, you know we're promoting uh, like you said division rather than our interconnection um, and, and it and it plays out in you know obviously in so many different ways you know we create these these social wedge issues you know gay people immigrants yes. um, you know uh, liberals uh, feminazi's you know we, we have all of these little uh, boxes that we put people in rather than looking at um, what we really all have in common. But, but, but I wonder, I mean, if, call me paranoid, but I, it feels like to me it's a strategy because if the 99% got past their wedge issues and realized, you know, uh, our interconnection, then maybe the status quo couldn't keep up the oppression and exploitation,
2: Yeah, I think you're right, and I would state it even more strongly, is that this kind of mode of dissociated thinking leads us to think of individuals as self-made people and self-entirely responsible for their fates. And in other cultures, people understand that the context that people find themselves are really responsible, too. So, you know, if someone's poor, it's not necessarily their fault, you know, it's, right. um, they've had different opportunities, and the whole dis- dissociated way of thinking in the West makes us more prone to blame them or also to reward the wealthy person, saying, and to think like Bill Gates and, the, and what the Koch brothers, they really have contributed. They're superstars. They've really contributed to society. And in fact, to some degree, to some great degree, they are partly a, an outcome of the. The context that they grew up in, and that they and the opportunities that they ran into in their lives.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, they're they're born into yeah. rich families with a silver spoon in their mouth, you know, and yeah. and then you know have no idea what it's like to live from paycheck to paycheck or be hungry, but yet they're gonna you know tell somebody else that well, gee, they're just not working hard enough. <laughs> yeah, That's it's that fantasy
2: really. that re- yeah, the fantasy of of you know, the self-made person, the, the heroic individual of the West that we make ourselves, and it's only partly the case. You know, we're only partly responsible for what happens to us. And, well, yeah, that also I, leaves I think, them
0: off the hook for paying taxes, you know, because right. if this whole idea that, you know, we live in a society together and, you know, they can throw that out the window, uh, you know, and, and get away with, you know, saying... Uh, you know that nobody should tell them you know that they need to pay taxes i mean you know it it's all interconnected you know in, in yeah. ways that you know even beyond the environmental
2: yeah you're absolutely right and i if you read in my book i actually talk about um conservative politics a little bit and the thing is yes they kind of i it's a kind of the epitome of dissociated thinking to think well yeah, I made myself, it, it's not, I'm not a product, my wealth is not a product of the society it came from, so why should I pay taxes? Yeah. And in fact, you know, your wealth and your entire life in many ways is an outcome of all of the relationships, ecological and human, that you have come out of and is Entirely dependent on that, and those, including political relationships as well. So, right. you know, don't tell me, yeah, yeah, it, that's you got me going because I get very <laughs> frustrated when I hear people, you know, when I hear that argument that you know keeping well, yeah. our money well.
0: Yeah, 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 or or you know, let's keep spending billions for the military-industrial complex while we cut food stamps. You know, please yeah. give me a break. Well, Ken, we probably have about seven or eight minutes left, and I want to get into some of the positive stuff. Um, you, um, you say there are two most important things people uh, can do to make nature more visible. And, um, you know, besides that, what other um, suggestions or, um, you know, alternatives do we have, you know, besides signing petitions on Facebook? You know, what can we actually do?
2: Yeah, I get into a lot of detail in that last chapter and a lot of ideas. And the thing is, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this could have a little bit of a frustration thinking, well the idea of a world in which we can actually witness all or most of the consequences of our choices every day is really just so mind-boggling far away that it's just not even realistic. And in fact, I completely understand that perspective. And I don't think this is something we necessarily have to be able to establish tomorrow. It's a long term project that would take many generations. And it's made out of a lot of small steps. And the steps start with what I was talking about earlier um, it starts with learning it desi- a project, a personal project to desi- desire to learn more about how your choices uh, reach out into the world and and reverberate in the world, how you're affecting the environment, how you're affecting poor workers elsewhere who have less power than you. And there are many resources for that. You can study more about food production processes. Uh, Michael Pollan and Eric Schlosser and others have written a lot about our food systems. Um, you can start learning more about how your food is made and make choices about um, that. You know, speaking of animal rights, is a, a great film to learn more about how um, meat is produced and not only that, but how animals are treated in all sorts of different sectors of industry, and it's called Earthlings. It's very difficult to, wo- to watch, but it also gives you a kind of a visceral feel for the kind of um, – um, the kind of suffering that's involved in the industrialization of animals and their lives in the modern world, at least in in this country, in the U.S. And so there are lots of things to do to start learning, but also things to start really immediately participating in the world. And that is something, luckily, something that's already starting to become more popular, um, like... um, uh, urban gardening and growing more of your own food, participating in more of the production of your own food, even the preparation of your food. People are cooking less, and it's important to keep involved in that. And I think a lot of our obesity epidemic is a result of not being as involved in the production of our in in the preparation of our own food, where we can actually yeah, we're just
0: going to the fast food place.
2: Up. Yeah, and so there's steps like that, and there's steps like learning more about local nature by having getting on uh, organizations like Close to Home and uh, here in the, in the San Francisco East Bay area where uh, people go on field trips with naturalists to learn about local nature. Um, so there's a learning component, but then there's a whole phase of, like I was saying before, of getting uh, more involved in the uh, political process and trying to bring politics home by making it a more deliberative uh, 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 process. So trying to get money out of politics, et cetera. Um, But there's also um, various other things to do uh, that have to do with eventually closing in on um, being able to see how you're affecting the world, which means buying more locally, getting more involved in local organizations, building up neighborhood organizations, um, doing all sorts of things like that that help us actually start to um, be closer to um, the consequences of our choices. And, you know, a lot of people want to know what are the easy things to do, and those are good places to start. And if you want to start being gentler on the planet, very easy things to do are things like um, flying less, uh, driving less, eating less meat, those all have really major impacts and so when you, st- when you do them less you're helping out a lot um, <clears throat> so I get into in the last chapter all sorts of other examples um, it's good to go through that and, uh, and just kind of pick up on whichever ones seem most attractive to you, it could be focusing on food, for instance, or it could be focusing on energy and transportation. Um, You know, it would be interesting to have a project, for instance, to learn where your electricity is coming from. Is it dependent on the time of day? Is it coming from nuclear power plants? Is it coming from wind farms, et cetera? When you you say electricity, it makes
0: me think when – I'm sorry. I, I, I was speaking over you, and I apologize. What did you say?
2: I was just saying when you start to do that, then we can start to we can start to take more responsibility for our actions when we start to get more involved in the, in that knowledge and and in making our food et cetera
0: um, well and, and I think maybe here in America we're a little bit more more spoiled than they, you know, people are in other countries. I mean, I recall when we visited Ireland and England, I mean, you have to make a, like, if you're going to go plug in, uh, you know, if we would stay in condos and things like that. And if you're going to go, say, for instance, plug in the coffee pot, you just, you know, you don't just flip the switch on the coffee pot. You literally have to turn the electricity on at the wall. And, yeah. and and it's some sort of an energy saving device i mean when we were in ireland literally because the refrigerators cost you know you so much electricity to run I, I mean this wasn't a nice place this wasn't a dive you you had to actually put coins in a meter and it and and the point is it makes you really conscious of how much electricity you're spending so to speak
1: yeah. you know that is key yeah,
0: Yeah, and, and, and I don't think really most key. of us really think about that very much.
2: Yeah. You know, becoming more conscious is basically the, the crux of this whole project that I'm talking about. First with knowledge, consciousness through knowledge, and consciousness through experience, uh, right. how we affect the world. Yeah, it's a good way to put it.
0: Well, turn yeah. too and, and and because this is so feels so big and overwhelming, maybe a good idea is to tell people if they 're really interested in this to do it in little bite sized pieces you know don 't feel like they have to go change uh, a whole lot of things all at once. Uh, I know I was reading something recently about as we get into the time of the year where we make resolutions you know you're more likely to uh follow through on a resolution if you only try to make one change at a time and uh also if you have a partner maybe helping you uh you can be like you know uh, make it a team sport or buddies um so you know just some other little tips that might make it easier for somebody to embark on these kinds of changes
2: Oh, absolutely. When people, that's what I was mentioning before, when people see a huge project and a whole different world that's very different from where we are and they get overwhelmed and being overwhelmed turns people off to action and to change. And that's what the good thing about reconnecting and healing the planet is we can actually do this step by step. You can do small things, becoming more aware of where electricity comes from, et cetera. And that's a huge, that's a, That's a positive thing, and you can feel good about it.
0: Right, right. Well, Ken, um, we are going to have to, um, you know, uh, call it quits, but uh, it's been great uh, talking to you about all of these different ideas tonight. Um, I want to thank you for your book, Finding the Human Place in Nature. And uh, for listeners, again, the website uh, is invisiblenature.com, and you can also follow Ken on his blog, uh kennethworthy.net or um you also write the green mind uh, on psych- psychologytoday.com um uh, yeah, well right. Ken, thank you so much uh, for thank- the, uh, the the awareness raising you're doing we certainly need it
2: You're welcome Karen thank you it's been a pleasure to speak with you tonight
0: Okay good night
2: Good night
1: bye bye
0: Bye bye Well, you know that sound. If you're a regular here at Voices of the Sacred Feminine, we are crossing the threshold uh, into the second half of the show. And in just a minute, we are going to be talking to uh, Sylvia Federici. Uh, But uh, before we do, I want to ask you if you've heard the latest out of Michigan. Yes, women need to buy what amounts to, they're calling it rape insurance, if they end up needing an abortion. But, of course, there's no such insurance for sale. Another ploy by Republicans to stop women from controlling their own bodies. And their futures. And that's the perfect segue, uh, along with my previous comments about uh, the non conformity, childless by choice women, uh, for my next guest, uh, Sylvia Federici. Uh, I first learned about Sylvia and her career when I saw an article titled, Who Were the Witches Patriarchal Terror and the Creation of Capitalism? on a website called The End of Capitalism. And the article really hit home with me as Alex Knight, the author of the article, connected the dots with Sylvia's help between how the powers that were of medieval Europe exploited or invented the fear of witches to u- to remake European society just as the powers that be today are using fear to control the masses. And boy, don't they have a really big megaphone with talk radio, right-wing talk radio and uh, Fox News. Well, we have a lot to talk about, uh, so I want to welcome Sylvia to the show. Hi, Sylvia.
3: Hi, Kate i have um, it's very good to talk to you tonight.
0: Well, I am so glad you're with me. Um I have been um looking forward to talking to you all year. We started chatting about you being on the show I think back in June. So I'm I'm yes. so glad uh to finally have you uh, have you with me. Um let me read uh, listener's a little bit of your bio uh, just so they know about uh you know the incredible work you've been doing in the world and then we're going to you know we're going to start chatting about um uh these topics. So listeners, Sylvia Federici, she's a veteran activist and writer who lives uh, in Brooklyn, New York. She's born and raised in Italy, uh, and she's taught in Italy, Nigeria, and the United States, where she's been involved in many movements, including feminist education and anti-death penalty struggles. Her influential 2004, Caliban and the Witch, Women, the Body, and Primitive Accumulation, built on decades of research and activism, offers an account of the relationship between the European witch trials of the 16th and 17th centuries and the rise of capitalism. Federici's work is rooted in a feminist and Marxist tradition that stresses the centrality of people's struggle against exploitation as the driving force of historical and global change. With other members of the Wages for Housework campaign, like Selma James. And uh, Maria Rosa Dalla Costa and with feminist authors like uh, Maria Mize and Vandana Shiva, Federici has been instrumental in developing the idea of reproduction as a key way to understand global and local power relations. I'm hoping we have enough time to get into that too because because that's very, very interesting. But uh, she's one of the founders of the International Feminist Collective, uh, the organization that launched the International Campaign for Wages For housework, and um, you now you're retired uh, from uh, Hofstra University. And again, uh, welcome to the show, uh, Sylvia. You uh, really know your stuff, it sounds like, and I can't wait to just uh, pick your brain. (laughs) Thanks
3: to you, Karen, for inviting me.
0: Well, you know what really um what, what really jumped out at me uh when I was uh, cuz I I unfortunately I don't have your book but this article that uh was written by um Alex Knight was really good. Uh he he uh you know brings to the fore that uh this this idea that we're dealing with since nine eleven you know where the hidden terrorists everywhere you know that they hate our freedom uh you know they've they've sort of become um, uh, you know it, 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 you know that has enabled the government to you know take away our freedom so that we're safe, and you make the connection that that's really what the witch trials were really about. Um, Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Because I'm not sure most of my listeners have made that connection. They just thought this was, you know, uh, about Christians hating the pagans or some sort of misogyny or gendercide.
3: Well, misogyny was a stake, but uh, very constructed. Uh, I often make the comparison between the witch hunts of the 16th and 17th century, although actually they lasted longer than those two centuries, but this was the peak, uh, were very much analogous to the war on terror today. You know, the witch was the terrorist of our time. Um, Laws were emanated uh, against them. Um, In the churches, people were warned. They were asked to denounce if they knew anyone who were witches among their neighbors, and uh, when a woman was suspected, there were men as well, but the the predominant majority was women, when she was suspected, practically she became isolated, and uh, the worst tortures were used to force her to confess. And literally, uh, in fact, the, the concept of a witch hunt, you know, has remained with us to indicate a particular type of persecution because once you were accused, it was very difficult to exonerate yourself. You know, in a way, uh, you were forced to confess under duress, and in many cases, you would also be executed. And uh, it was certainly a way that we chant to break the resistance of a whole population, particularly a rural population, who in the 16th century were <laughs> under attack because the, the whole world was being changed. You know, the period of the Wichantis coincides with the period in which in many parts of Europe you have a transition from what had been a feudal type of society to a new capitalist world which involves a, a new work discipline and a major transformation in the organization of work, in the organization of property. This is a period in which you have a massive expropriation of land. Uh, you also have the beginning of a monetary economy, which uh, increases immensely coupled with land expropriation the cost of the most basic uh, goods the people require for their survival this is also the beginning with the period in which we have the beginning of the slave trade and uh, the conquest of what was to be called Latin America and uh, it's a period that saw a tremendous amount of resistance you know, people were expelled from their villages and uh, clearly women in particular were a the center. Of this
0: resistance,
3: and also were those who were most impacted by these developments?
0: Well, um, and, and really, in a way, this is sort of piggybacks on what my last guest just said about uh, sort of divisiveness, dividing and conquering. Um, you know, the uh, wedges were. Uh, you, you said, you know, wedges were sort of uh, drawn in the community, you know, having neighbor turn against neighbor yes. uh, rather than, you know, them having a, uh, you know, have solidarity to fight the exploitation that they were all facing. Um, also, you know, as their land is taken away, they're starting to rely on moving into the cities and getting jobs, and, you know, they aren't self-reliant anymore. They don't have their, you know, their land to feed themselves, to support themselves. Um, and I, I think there was also something in here about, well, of course, it's and it's also about having cheap labor, um, and women become uh, sort of, uh, you know, sort of second-class um, you know, second-class uh, citizens, so to speak, and, uh, and and people like, you know, uppity women, pe- women who didn't want to conform, uh, they were also targets of this witch hunting, right?
3: Yeah, I'm making the connection between, uh, you know, the reason why the witch hunt particularly targets women. I'm making a number of connections. Uh, one connection certainly uh, concerns the fact that there's a vast population of women, older women, you know, who were extremely victimized by these developments. You know, if you're a young man, you could become a vagabond. You could take the road. You could escape the village. If you were an older woman, you were there and you had nothing left. And many women basically survived begging. And when they were refused charity, they would curse the neighbor who refused them. And then they would be occur- accused. Mm-hmm. Of any evil that happened in the community, but another connection that I also make is that with the development of a new family, uh, capitalist economy, you know, there is a major major transformation that uh, in 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 the re- reorganization in the organization of production and reproduction, because what you begin to see is that the the work of women, the work of reproduction you know, begins to uh, disappear as labor. In fact, you have the beginning of an economy where only work for a wage is recognized, you know, the work that produces for the market, and uh, where, in fact, a whole area of activity, which is the activities that produce life on a day-to-day basis, begins to disappear as work. And, in fact, the whole history of capitalism has been a history in which these activities have been completely devalued up to this day. You know, it, it, It's still very much that situation. Uh, it has taken a lot of struggle in, in the women's movement uh, to establish that actually reproductive work, housework, domestic labor is work. Uh, so that in fact the loss of a social position of women is very much connected with the return. And, of course, there are other factors because with capitalism comes a whole new discipline of work, which is also a new discipline of everyday life, of sexuality, the family, procreation. And, uh, you know, we see many women who were accused of being witches, where women were accused of sexual crime, of procreative crime. Right, and, right. Uh, yes. And this is ex- extremely important because sexuality... Is seen begins to be seen as something that is subversive. You know, it's subversive of the discipline of work.
1: You know, right.
3: So the woman represents now the the the, the temptation that represents the one who has to be domesticated, truly.
0: Well, and uh, you you talk too about um, you know it, it, the very same thing that we're seeing now. Uh, you know, women's control over their reproductive process. You know, was an issue. Uh, Midwives were replaced with male doctors. Um, Infanticide and abortion were outlawed. Um, So, you know, and and it's amazing that um, you know we're we're seeing that really making a comeback today. Uh, You know, in the last few years, with the religious right coming on so strong.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. I feel that in some ways there's something of every chance that is coming back. When I see uh, some of the bills that have been contemplated in a number of states, you know, bills that truly criminalize women, you know, even... Uh, in fact, there was a very interesting report, very, very worrisome report uh, that came out in January of last year uh, that showed... That, in fact, particularly if you are poor, or if you are a woman of color, becoming pregnant, it's a great liability. Yes. I think the report said it puts you outside of the boundaries of the Constitution, huh. because there have been cases in which women found themselves in car accidents, and upon revealing to the police that they were pregnant, they were arrested. And uh, for recklessness, for jeopardizing, you know, the life of the fetus.
0: So the fetus has more rights than the mother. Right.
3: More rights, and uh, in a number of states, you know, there have been proposals, you know, to make women even uh, uh, to basically accuse them of of negligence. Uh, for example, even if they live with a man with a violent man, because uh, being abused can actually put in jeopardy their pregnancy. So there is a, a misogyny that is still with us, in fact, is coming back, that <laughs> I see connected, in fact, to this, some of the economic changes that are taking place in our time. Well, but yeah. You both, I mean,
0: it's like, just—it's just, just not the war on women. I mean, you talk about as soon as uh, you know, in, in the in the Middle Ages, as soon as people lost access to their land and the workers were sort of uh, plunged into uh, dependence, uh, and, and their landless conditions gave employers the power uh, to cut their pay and lengthen the workday. And, you know, I'm thinking about, I mean, we're hearing today in the news, you know, Republicans want to do away with the minimum wage. They want to do away with child labor laws. Uh, I mean, women already make less than men for the same work. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's. you know, has anything yes. changed? <laughs>
3: yes, absolutely. It's very important to know. And uh, I think uh, the women, particularly women of the younger generation, should learn that the lesson that uh, even though you may think that you have made certain games, uh you should never stop, you know, fighting for them. Because well, I've they are never the- absolutely established. And, well, uh, and you,
0: um, you, now, you you talk about the forgotten revolution. I I wonder. Well, obviously, by that name, uh, maybe a lot of people haven't heard about it. But apparently, uh, poor people almost toppled the church and state in the Middle Ages.
3: Well, um, what actually happened? And I have a chapter in the book, which actually was for me an important discovery, because I was interested to understand what brought about the development of a capitalist society. How does this system change? Why we go from feudalism to capitalism, something that we learned in secondary school. Um, but I wanted to understand what were the, the motivating factors, which had never really been properly explained. And I began to realize, you know, doing research work, that uh, first of all there had been a tremendous a process of struggle throughout the Middle Ages. In other words, the peasantry, the artisan, uh, what we, we used to call the serfs, uh, were very much in, in struggle uh, against the, the restriction they suffered in the in the feudal period, in the manorial economy. But at the same time, you also had um, movements that used the language of religion. They, they are defined as a heretic movement because they use the language of religion, but they used it in a way that challenged the church. And it challenged the beginning of a commercial economy. You know, these were movements that, like the Valdencians, the Carthers, uh, who basically said, you know, that Christ was poor, uh, that the church was poor, that uh, the accumulation of wealth that was typical of the church of the time, that uh, this was uh, sacrilegious. uh and they wanted a society of people who were equal. they believed that you know inequality and uh, this this movement also uh, in their ranks gave more power to women. The church was very much misogynous, but in the heretic movement, women could administer the sacraments, and they had in fact they were very um, half of Half of the people in the erotic movement were women, uh, which I also connect, you know, with the fact that uh, in the development to capitalism, women become the target, you know, of a of a massive persecution. So. uh, we have a very distorted image of the feudal world, you know we have been fed a bit of Robin Hood but mostly kings and queens uh, and uh, we don't know that actually this was a very period of intense struggles and struggles that had many dimensions not only economic in terms of refusal of the labor services refusal of the kind of enslavement that uh, existed on the feudal manor but also challenged to the ideology, ideology of the church and the ideology of the lay authorities. You know, they basically uh, preach preached inequality and uh, and also you know preach complete subservience to the church, you know, in the name of the church being the depository of God's word.
0: Right. And see this woman and, well, and, and of course the women uh you know women suffered at the hands of the church uh as, as well. I mean, you know, you know women lost what standing they may have had. I I mean, uh husbands could even, you know, beat their wives if, you know, she uh didn't uh you know d- behave properly by his uh by his standards. I mean, she was little more than than chattel.
3: Well, you know, certainly the, the church uh, prescribed a subordinate position for women. But what I discovered, actually, is that uh, in the medieval world, you didn't have equality between women and men. But actually, the position of women uh, was not as subordinate as it has been portrayed. Because you have a whole economy, particularly in which, uh, actually, the relation between production and reproduction was not as separate as it becomes in capitalism. You know, in the community of surf, when you cultivated a piece of land that you had, you know, you were both a producer and a reproducer.
1: So you didn't
3: have the kind of dependence, economic dependence of women on men the later you have when you have a separation between, you know, those who work for a wage and those who are doing reproductively but then they have no wage, and they have to depend on those who have money, and so that kind of separation and subordination uh, is not present in the, in the world of, uh, of the feudal manners. you not all, all among the artisans. You know the, If you were an artisan, both husband and wife worked together, and the uh, in, in work of women was recognized equally. So and also, I, I discovered that women. There was a tremendous amount of collective work, and um, they, they, you still have a communal sense. And many activities were communal activities, particularly reproductive activities. Not only people were harvesting together or sewing together, but women were washing the clothes together, sewing together. So you that. Created forms of solidarity; they were very important, you know, in uh, boosting resistance to exploitation, to subordination.
0: Right, because they had each other to draw strength from. I mean, there yes. was, um, you know, uh, strength in strength in numbers, um, so to speak. They yes. weren't isolated and, um, you know, on their own. Well, um, Sylvia, uh, the 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 women who were accused uh, of being witches, is there disinformation about who these women are or were? I'm sorry. Um, You know, how would you describe uh, the the people who were accused of uh, being a witch? And were they practicing an old religion? I mean, what crimes were they accused of?
3: Yeah, it has often, you know, it has often been suggested that these were women who were practicing in the religion. And of course, there were many remnants of an older religion, rural-based, nature-based religion throughout Europe. But I haven't found evidence that the women who were accused were accused because of these practices. What well, I found is that these were, if you want, uh, women who were accused for the variety of what they were called crimes, uh, but very much related to the uh, economic changes that were taking place at the time. In other words, that with the witch-hands, hunt, is being targeted is not necessarily a particular type of crime or a particular set of crimes, but rather forms of behavior They were very widespread but they now begin to be seen as incompatible with the social discipline.
0: So like what?
3: Like. We, have a, we have a number of, the, the, the majority of women are, were women, as I mentioned before, poor old women who, were, who had nothing and were begging. And in this period, begging and charity begin to be ostracised. You know, in the Middle Ages, the church uh, distilled charity was considered a virtue. Now you begin to have a whole work ethic that, in fact, penalizes begging and penalizes charity as well. So the woman who goes around from house to house asking for some wine, asking for some butter, now she has to be refused. There is a shift, there is a breakup in the communal spirit where charity now is to be refused. And, of course, she's the woman who curses. Then we have also another group of women, as I mentioned before, are women who are midwives. They control the process of reproduction. And there's a tremendous concern in this period with the question of contraception, with the question of abortion. Abortion becomes a capital crime for the first time in this period. It becomes a capital crime. And I associate that with the new preoccupation also with labor power, you know, with increasing the population of workers. You know, this is a period in which throughout you know, the, the areas of Europe in which you begin to develop a capitalist economy, there is a concern, there is an idea that prevails that the more workers you have, the more wealth. Because, uh, the, you know, the the body of the worker, is the energy of the worker is still the main source of, is seen as the main source of
0: wealth. So they wanted or, a workforce. That's why they yes. didn't want women to have abortions.
3: Exactly. So there's a connection now The you know, the procreation begins to have an economic value. And also crimes, what we call uh, crimes... Uh, uh, that are connected with so-called sexual transgression. So many times the women were accused had been women who in their youth had been prostitutes or they had had the children outside the wedlock or they had love affairs with men of another class. Generally, the, the witches were always poor women. Uh, so they... Disciplining of sexuality is a very important part of the witch hunt. And finally, the other category are women who were healers. You know, you didn't have, particularly among poor people, you didn't have the doctor. Actually, in fact, you had uh, a grassroots knowledge of uh, you know, basic elements of, of medicine, mostly because women who were healers. Every woman had a herb garden and knew something about the property of herbs. They were curandera, in, you know. Uh, they, these women, and particularly those who practiced that, uh, were particularly targeted. So, you know, women represented who represented, were the certain powers, who were popular in the community, and they had, uh, you know, and another source of, of accusation, very interesting, is related to property crime. You know, and this one is against women and also against some men. In other words, you have a society in which the well-to-do are now beginning to fear, you know, the the poor who have been expropriated, who have been impoverished, and this idea of the of uh, you know witches going out at night, you know, stealing animals with magical arts or devouring animals with their magical arts, stealing from their homes. This is another, you know, typical crime. So what I write in the book is that the witch hunt reveals, first of all, an environment extremely polarized in in which the well-to-do lived in the fear of the poor because they knew. That uh, they had been expropriated and they fear their revenge. Mm. And uh, at the same time, you have ongoing a process of social reformation, not only religious but social reformation. They really tries to instill a whole new discipline that affects every aspect of everyday life. And the witches are those who are seen as, in fact, embodying the transgression. Of the new canons.
0: Well, so the church, though. Okay, so we—I I understand why the women were accused of being a witch from a Socioeconomic point of view. Um, was what did the church have to gain uh, from you know from the Inquisition and and the the witch trials? Um, you know, what what did they want out of it? Well, you know, I think. We
3: we tend to separate church and the church, church and state in our imagination, but actually the church was very much part of the power structure. Ah.
0: The
3: church is extremely, in fact, uh, until the 18th century, uh, you don't have any separation between the church is really at the other arm of the state if you want, or in fact, for for much of the... Middle Ages, there is a struggle between who is supreme, but uh, they, you have no difference. You know, for example, throughout the Middle Ages, the church, and, and, and even later, was the, the main proprietor of land in Europe. Um, they also, they had, uh, they were economic agents. You know, they had slaves, they had serfs, Um
0: so, yes, yeah, so they were but, they were part of the economy. So it
3: absolutely. was, it was economic. Church, yes, the church had a special role in the sense that the church, throughout, through its persecution of the heretic, you know, in the course of its persecution of the heretic, built, you know, the the idea of witchcraft, you know, which is, which is an idea that is really uh, is rooted on the notion of heresy, on the notion that uh, uh, there is a, it's a world divided in good and evil, God and Satan. And witchcraft is not sorcery. You know, sorcery has been around in many, many different cultures. Is the idea that people have special means, sometimes supernatural means, to obtain, to satisfy their desire. To, uh, but witchcraft is something different because it's built on the idea of a Manichean world divided, you know, where you know, you're not only trying to obtain your desires through supernatural being, but you're actually becoming a servant of the devil. Mm. And so the church built this ideology. Um, by the 15th century, you know, the idea that there were sects of people who were practicing witchcraft, was completed and the first demonologists were men of the church but more and more the idea of the existence of witches is taken over by the state and in fact at the peak of the witch hunt when dozens and dozens of women were being arrested, tortured and killed it was mostly uh, the lay magistrates who were conducting the persecutions So the church definitely has a role, but it is uh, inappropriate to think that it was the main agent Uh, because, in fact, when the the persecution becomes a mass phenomenon, it is really the state that uh, is the initiator.
0: So, let me ask you um, you know you you made <clears throat> the connection to you know this uh, this fear mongering we have now with you know terrorism to the fear of the witches um, you know I tend to think that you know the people who are promoting the fear mongering of the of terrorists or just you know trying to whip people into a frenzy and I mean the likelihood of somebody being killed uh by a terrorist is so slim. You know, you're more likely to go get killed in a car accident or you know die of a disease or something like that than actually be killed by a terrorist. Do you think um this, you know, this fear of the devil, this uh you know this stuff that uh, the church was uh you know said they were concerned about do you think they really believed it or it was just an excuse just like today's fear-mongering
3: well you know this is a very it's a very controversial and very difficult question uh to answer uh to what extent they the persecutors convinced themselves that uh, there was such a thing as as witchcraft um, I stayed away from raising the question, okay, know, fair because, enough. Because yeah, I stayed away from raising the question because to us it seems impossible that they could believe such a thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, between 1450 and 1700, you know, you have several dozens demonologies were written and they were circulated throughout Europe. You know, they were reading it. You know, people, the, the, the things they were written in German, uh, in Germany, or in, because they were written in Latin, they could be read in, in England, in Scotland. It's clear that there is an idea, a perspective that is now formed. In fact, as the witch hunt proceeds, uh, you find that the argument become very standardized and that you can only explain that kind of
0: standardization
3: by the fact that they were reading each other's work
0: and very well, often like today's talking points you know yes, you can the talking yeah. point, they were using
3: the formulas exactly <laughs> exactly so they, they is, uh, it's believable that they actually came to believe you know in in uh, in, in what they were proposing
0: uh,
3: right or or it also, becomes
0: groupthink you know yes Group yes. So so the witch hunting, was it exclusively a European phenomenon?
3: It was not. It was not. very important. Uh, in fact, it's very interesting that the witch hunt, in fact, begins to take on a mass dimension at the very same time when you have the colonization, the conquest colonization of, uh, of, of South America. You know, it's really uh, coeval, you know, with the conquest of Mexico, the Andean region, and uh, the whole ideology of witchcraft is brought is brought to the New World through the missionaries, through the conquistadores, and you have witch hunt in Mexico. Many people are burnt at the stake as witches. Men and women, but mostly men, actually, to to force them to reveal. You know where their hidden treasure uh, should be, and uh, but later, uh, as the conquest proceeded, particularly in the Andean region, uh, the witch hunts became more and more targeted towards women, and hmm. uh, clearly, for the two reasons in particular: one, women were those who most strongly resisted colonization. In fact, in many cases, there is documentation uh, about the fact that women continue a kind of underground uh, in an in a, in a underground manner, they, they, the old religion and the old social relation, in many cases, they fled. They went to the highlands to the Punya in the Andean region, and they created communities in which they could continue their life. Uh, the other reason is that the, the Spaniards brought to the New World uh, the same misogynist conception that they were being you know, promoted in Europe. And uh, they, in fact, introduced you know, a, a gender hierarchies in society where they had not been where there had been some inequality between women and men, but not the same kind of inequality and not the same type of misogynist attitude towards women. And so not accidentally, you know, women were those who resisted most, most strongly, and they became right. target.
0: Well, and that's very interesting. I mean, you, know, you hear about the Spanish conquest of the, of that part of the world, but I'd never heard before about the witch hunting uh, absolutely, before.
3: Yes, absolutely. Well, it's very interesting that, you know, we always think, when we think about witch hunting in America, we think of Salem. Right. But actually there were persecution much broader, you know, in, in the south. And uh, it's very interesting. In fact, uh, the... There was one uh, magistrate, a French magistrate, Pierre Lang, who at the turn of the 17th century basically developed a theory that uh, the reason why uh, there were witch hunts in Europe was because, uh, they because the Europeans had gone to the American continent and all the devils, who had been uh, living there, were now traveling to Europe. Uh, <laughs> That's hysterical. And in fact, he even managed to say that uh, they had been seen crossing the Atlantic uh, <laughs> because, <laughs> the, yes, the attitude of uh, the missionaries when they went to you know Mexico or Peru was to say these are all devils. Oh you wow. Know. In fact, the, wow. Name of the Red Devil has continued. You know, and then also of course in North America.
0: So Sylvia, let me ask you this. Is it possible to know if Christianity had not taken hold, if you know, Constantin if, if Constantine had never, you know, obliterated the pagans and said, you know, we're gonna use Christianity as the glue to uh you know to to unite mm-hmm. us all yes. if it hadn't been if that hadn't all happened would the would all of you know would would this have happened anyway you know because of the the economics of it or do you think christianity was a a major factor
3: actually i think that christianity was a major factor because uh, this question came uh, when I had to write the introduction to the Turkish translation of Caliban and the Witch. And I had to do some research because they asked me for an introduction, so I had to do some research. And I realized that uh, the conquest, the Ottoman, co- the, 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 there was the Ottoman conquest of Greece, for instance, uh, they took place at the time in which the witch hunts were beginning in Europe, and uh, did not provoke witch hunts. That in the areas in the region in which you had an Ottoman Congress, there was no witch hunting. Actually, there were some witch hunts, but much, 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 much later, when also the influence of what was happening in the rest of Europe was beginning to be felt. Okay. And I had to come to the conclusion. And of course, there was exploitation, and there was, but not the same type of relationship. So I had to come to the conclusion that, in fact, uh, the ideology of Christianity. And also, another important factor that I think plays a role in the witch hunt, and it, it still does today in, in many forms of violence against women, which is land dispossession. The question of land was also very important in the witch hunt. And what you had in the conquest of the Ottoman Empire, you had the imposition of tributes, but you didn't have the mass land dispossession that you had in Europe. And the 16th and the 17th centuries.
0: Hmm. So it's all it's all about material wealth,
3: <laughs> because material wealth so much shapes human relations. Yeah, it's the separation between the cultural and the material. I think uh, you know the, the division of discipline has habituated us to draw this line, but in real life, those lines do not exist. People die of passion, of jealousy, over expropriation, over fears for their future, and we we are one thing, you know, that uh, we we are not separated, compartmentalized the way we often are described by the discipline.
0: Right, right. So tell me, did uh has the church, the Vatican or any Protestant churches has, has there been any apology for the witch hunts?
3: None. It has been my dream to have a big demonstration of women in front of the Vatican. But uh, it hasn't occurred yet.
0: Actually, I wonder if this those... po- this pope is surprising people.
3: Uh-huh. You know, maybe
0: it could happen with this pope.
3: Yes, we'll see. It'll be very interesting. But I have to say that uh, the witch hunt crossed religion. Uh, And in fact, it's very interesting. I say that the witch hunt was a unifying factor in Europe. You know, because Protestants and Catholics who were at war with each other in every possible way, both persecuted witches, <laughs> and in many ways with the same argument and with the same tactics and with the same results for the
0: people involved. So they might not go to church together, but they'll go watch the witch burning on the corner together. That's
1: right.
0: Oh, That's my God.
1: Right. Yes.
0: So, um, so how do you uh, – tell us how we can connect the witch hunting uh, today um with violence against women, are you talking about like in Africa where the you know there people are still being persecuted for that
3: yeah uh, not still yeah still being persecuted, but it's a recent phenomenon it 's a phenomenon that really begins uh in the late eighties and nineties and continues to these days, and in fact, not only in Africa, it began in Africa, but we now see it in India and more recent in Papua New Guinea. And there have been actually some cases even of be women being uh, uh, executed, as witches in Saudi Arabia, East Timor. And I've done some research and I've come to the conclusion, and I'm not alone in that. There is a relationship between these new witch hunts. They have a particular form. Uh, and... Uh, Globalization, the the kind of transformation that have been taking place, you know, throughout this period in the global economy, which mm. also have led to massive impoverishment, decline in access to the basic means of reproduction, particularly land. There's massive, massive land expropriation, land grabs in India, in Africa. You know, you now have these multinational corporations. You know, agrofuel, agrobusiness, mining are really descending on these areas and taking over land. You have the breakup of the last communal uh, system of land ownership, and uh, and that also is tearing the communities apart. So,
0: so history is repeating itself, really, is what yes, you're saying.
3: I fear, I fear it is the case.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um well Sylvia, we only have about 10 more minutes. Um I I wanted to ask you a couple other quick things. Sure. Um I saw your uh your other uh article uh by Max Haven about feminism finance and the future of occupy.
1: Oh, Obviously,
0: yeah. you know, that was that was a couple of years ago, but I wonder in retrospect, um do you think Occupy accomplished anything worthwhile? Is it still alive? Is it dead? I mean, any comments you want to make about that um that movement
3: yeah i, I think it did accomplish i think I've always been very positive about it, although i really like many others you know was very upset to see the way it was ended and the way it was so violently persecuted. Whereas it was a very peaceful movement, I think it first of all inspired you know a lot of young people mm-hmm. to think and realize that something is possible, that change is possible and uh, and also gave them a collective experience you know it, those those uh, we can spend together, you know not only discussing but organizing the reproduction, food, cleaning, making posters, running assemblies, and uh, all with the idea of uh, establishing very communitarian and egalitarian principles. I think they've been a very powerful, inspiring force for many youth. And I don't think it's all finished. In fact, in many places... We have seen new forms of organization emerging out of that. Uh, I can speak for New York. I can speak for Philadelphia. I know in New York, for example, uh, what has grown out of Occupy has been a movement around the question of debt that began as a movement against student loan debt. You know, because so many students now have to bankrupt themselves in order to have an education. And mm-hmm. education should not be a commodity. Education should be free.
1: Right. Know?
3: And, uh, but then it's also grown into a broader movement. Not only around, you know, around that incurred, uh, for example, because people have medical problems, for lack of good access to medical insurance, or... The, Because of mortgages, so the the I think the impetus that Occupy expressed, you know, that was came from it, has been transferred to struggles that are less visible, but are still there in the neighborhood against eviction, against indentment, and I'm. I want. I'm, I try to be an optimist against all odds. I want to be an optimist and think that, in fact, it has been a transformative force.
0: Well, and you think about the new mayor of New York, De Blasi. I mean, he has a, pro, a liberal, progressive agenda. We'll see. Well, supposedly you have Elizabeth Warren. Um, mm-hmm. You know. Um, so I don't know. I keep hoping that the pendulum. You know, we'll we'll swing back, um, but uh, well, you know, we, we don't have much time, and and I'll leave this up to you. Um, I was going to ask you about um, you, you were instrumental in developing the idea of reproduction. Kent, is that something you can explain in a couple minutes? Because I probably can give you five, and that's about it.
3: Sure. No, the the. Um... Well, I didn't develop the idea of reproduction. I was involved in the women's movement, as you mentioned, in the 70s, and uh, like many women in the movement, we began from the question uh, of housework, domestic work, because many of us were uh, rebelling against the idea that our life would be all confined to be domestic, you know, houseworkers and mothers and, and uh, wives. Uh, so that that stimulated among many of us a whole uh, this desire to analyze, what is this work? You know, what is this domestic work? We began to see that this domestic work is something very different from what it is presented, it's not only making cakes for children, but actually is, uh, is, a, is work that on a day-to-day basis reproduces workers, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it was very important for us because this work is, was never seen as real work. You know, the story was always, what, what is your mother doing? Oh, my mother stays home, my father has a job, my mother stays home. Well, we began to realize that far from being marginal, this work is extremely important because, uh, again, this is the pillar on which every other form of work has been based. You know, without uh, reproductive work, no other forms of work could take place. So, in fact, we began to turn around, you know, the the institutional discourse and say the reason why this work is invisible is because it's very convenient to declare it's not work so they don't have to pay for this work. And Mm -hmm. by not paying for this work, it means that uh, they can actually reproduce the workforce very, very, very cheaply. They can con- reduce the cost of labor. And so we began to see, you know, the women had been carrying the burden of reproducing the workforce and forced into economic dependence on top of it. And this was the beginning also of a whole analysis of what is that this work involved and realizing how much work is involved on a on day-to-day basis. Right. It's not just doing the wash, et cetera, et cetera. The emotional work, the organizational work, the child raising, the discipline of other people, which is the most difficult part to, to accomplish. Because in a society in which, you know, you're being prepared for a labor market, you have to learn to continuously say no, et cetera. Uh, and uh, so this is where the idea of reproduction. And the idea of reproduction became important in my work both as the place that has been the source of much of the exploitation of women and at the same time as the place from which change must begin because it's also the place in which all our most important social relations are constituted. And in fact, I've, I've recently published a book called Revolution at Point Zero, which is revolution in the process of reproduction as the starting point for for the really long and sustaining social change.
0: Well, we sure need that. Um, well, Sylvia, um, I could talk to you for another hour, but I'm afraid we are out of time. Um, if listeners want to know more about your work, um, you know, I know you're retired, but do you have a website or, or where would you say they should go to, you know, read what I, you've I written? I do
3: not have a website, but actually. Uh, the young man that you quoted before, Alex Knight, has set up a Facebook for me. And uh, he religiously puts uh, what things that I publish on that Facebook, and so they can uh, access that.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. And, uh, and listeners, I would really recommend you go to the website endofcapitalism.com and look for this article uh, by Alex Knight, Who Were the Witches, Patriarchal Terror, and the Creation of Capitalism. goes into a little bit more detail than we had time for. And uh, also, you know what, you can just Google Sylvia's name and lots of her stuff comes up uh, on the Internet. It is well worth your time. Um, Sylvia, it's been great. I'm so glad I' got a chance to meet you and hear about uh, your important work. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the thank show.
3: You. Yes, Kevin, thank you so much to you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Oh, thank you so much, and you have a wonderful holiday.
3: And you as well.
0: Bye. Okay, Good night. Well, listeners, I'm sure you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, thank you for uh, tuning in and uh, hearing the two wonderful guests we had tonight. And um, as I'm about to uh, close tonight's show, uh, I want you to remember something very important, lest we never forget. Uh, it's important to repeat and punctuate again and again. I believe we are the cognitive minority, just like the scientists who are trying to convince medieval Christians in the church Uh, that the world was not flat and the sun did not revolve around the earth, we have an important message in the sacred feminine ideals of liberation theology is that message. And as Gandhi said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. So uh, I will be back with you uh, again next week. Um, and um, I will uh, have two, uh, two great guests on the 23rd of um, December. And then uh, David Hillman is back with me on December 30th. So two more shows left for 2013. And as I say goodbye to you tonight, uh, I am going to leave you with uh, some music. Oh, let's try uh, Sacred Way by Abigail Spinner McBride. Good night, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. You are the gas in my tank.